Welcome to Standing at the Edge, the podcast. I'm Casey Stratton. I'm here with a bonus episode this week for you because I was going to have my husband as my guest this week, but we never got our crap together and recorded the interview, which is ridiculous because we are both homebound basically 24-7, but we didn't do it, so whatever. Our sleeping schedules are really different lately. We're kind of coping differently to the COVID pandemic and being basically quarantined. Every once in a while, I'll go to a doctor's appointment or Costco or something, but that's about it. Uh, We get most of our food delivered. We're all just trying to get through this the best we can. I'm in a really weird place today, to be honest. I've been kind of feeling defeated by the news cycle and just everything that I'm seeing and hearing and just seeing all the the arguments online, so many arguing people, lots of people sharing things from like tabloids, like the Daily Mail and like arguing over it. And I'm like, you guys are arguing over something that's not even true, but okay. And just trying not to, I don't know, my mantra lately is like, do not argue with strangers on the internet. It doesn't work. It's pointless. So yeah, things just feel, I don't know, like what is the point of anything some days? Um, and there you know there are lots of things to be grateful for, but I'm feeling it this week. I'm feeling resentful that I can't eat whatever I want because now I'm basically plant-based except for a little bit of cheese and every once in a while seafood. And really missing like being in a restaurant and having a nice glass of wine with my friends. Just, I don't know, it's all, I feel a little bit like the walls are closing in today. I know it will be better. There'll be better days ahead. So I'm kind of glad to be doing this and recording this today. Um, what I did was I went on my Facebook page and asked people to um, talk about what any kind of songs of mine that they would like to hear about uh, have me discuss a little bit so that's what we're gonna be doing this week is going through some of my work and talking about it um, it's crazy to think that I've been recording for 25 years but yeah I started my first album in the summer of, two, of 1995 I couldn't <laughs> had to go back to the 1900s there so yeah just so there's so much going on and so little going on at the same time and sometimes it feels difficult to cope but i'm doing the best i can i hope you're doing the best you can just it's a lot we're living through some historically interesting and unique times and i keep thinking like how can things get worse and then they do our response here in the united states has been horrific terrible people talking about oh the second wave is starting and it's like we never even finished the first one like it's still things are culminating so yeah anyway lots of outside sounds today so forgive me if you're listening to it loudly or alone or in quiet a quiet place and you hear all the the background noise there's planes and motorcycles planes trains and automobiles happening in grand rapids michigan where i live so let's dig in Every dog in town wants to bark right now, but that's okay. So the first song we're going to talk about is Blood. Sereno from the Netherlands actually asked me about this. He wanted to talk about the difference between the original version of Blood, which is on my record called The Winter Children, and the Standing at the Edge version of Blood. Blood is a really interesting song for me because it's one of my most popular songs. It's the probably the number one song if I don't play it in a show. People will say afterward, I can't believe you didn't play Blood. And I used to be kind of weird about it. I don't know. With my sets, I was like, it's I'm going to do what I'm feeling and I'm not going to bow to pressure to play a particular song. I don't feel like I have to play something every single show. I wanted to really mix it up. My set lists are always different. Um, Sony did not like that. Let's start with that. Sony wanted all of my shows to be the same songs in the same order with the same talking in between. And I didn't want to do it. And I'm going to tell you why. We'll talk about this before we get into the actual song. So I have seen Tori Amos, who is 
my number one biggest influence and my favorite musician, singer, songwriter of all time. I have seen her live, I can't even count how many times. It's over 50 for sure. And every single set list is different. Every show is different. You feel the energy of the city you're in. You mix it up. That's what she does. That's what I've done. And then I've seen Sarah McLachlan, who I also really like. Uh, I've seen her live twice on the same tour and it was jarring to me because she does do the same show in the same order with the same banter. And so the second time, and this is no reflection on her, it's just the way I perceived it, it didn't feel as authentic to me, obviously, because it's like this prefabricated thing, which can work really well if you want this like well-oiled machine and the crew and everybody has it down. It's almost like a musical traveling and, and that's fine, but it just doesn't work for me. I get really bored with it. And I like the feeling of being in a city and kind of soaking up the energy when I get there and feeling like, okay, what is this? What am I feeling tonight? Or like, what songs do I really want to play instead of what songs do I have to play? So for a long time, Sony wanted me to do the same show. And what I would do is just get on stage and do whatever I wanted. I'm like, what are you going to come out with a hook, like a Looney Tunes thing? Like I, I knew I had the power that like once the show started, they couldn't stop me. And it didn't make me popular, I'll say that much. We had a lot of arguments about it. So this is all going to come into play too, because I originally wrote Blood in 2001. If you were on my Facebook page when we kind of went through each song on Stand at the Edge, you will know, but I'll tell the story briefly. I actually wrote Blood while I was walking home in Chicago. I had gone grocery shopping and I was walking home with bags and bags of groceries on both arms. And I had the idea for the like whatever the piano part. So that got in my head and I was like, oh, I got to get home. I got to get home. So I got home and I wrote it. This was the summer of 2001, right before 9-11 happened. Um, and I had been seeing someone in a long distance relationship who was actually like a designer of furniture. And so that's where the... Um, teleport me out of your design line comes from but anyway the comment that i got was that the original version of the song and you can hear the original version on the winter children album which is at store.caseystratton.com you can stream it there and the standing at the edge version you can hear basically all over the place um but the winter children's not on itunes or spotify i don't think no it's not so um Anyway, I, I wrote the song and the comment was that the original one seemed more like mythical or mystical and, uh, compared to the Stand at the Edge version. That's 100% true. I was going through this huge spiritual phase at the time. I was reading all sorts of like new age books and I had um, learned about this ancient supposed civilization called Lemuria where people were both genders, if you're thinking of a binary gender of male and female, which traditionally, you know, at least in the West, that's what we're dealing with right now um, with European countries. But uh, yeah, like the, there were these original beings of species, whatever human, whatever you want to call it, that were both male and female, and then they got split in two. And so there's this whole idea that like, that's what your soulmate is. It's like finding the other half of yourself, whatever. So in the original version, there's some spoken word stuff going on that's kind of hidden in the like intro outros between the verses and the choruses and I'm talking about that you can't really tell I kind of disguised it but yes the original version of blood was much more coming from a spiritual place as far as the recording of it and the way I did it and of course the spoken word stuff is not even in the standing at the edge version I had a thing back then for like putting this like hidden like cellophane if you listen to the original version of that I do um, psalm I think it's 23 yea though I walk through the shadow of death thou shall be with me blah 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 I guess I probably shouldn't blah, 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 blah the Bible, but I'm doing it. So, um, yeah, it was very much, I, I, that song just, I don't know, something about it, it has that like dark quality to it and like the give me a little of your blood. Like there's some, there's like a violence to it, but it's really more symbol, symbolic of like, 
I'm going to take like your very essence from you. Like I'm so turning the tables. I have all these songs usually where I'm the one being hurt or I'm the one who the person's not being present for. And this song was really kind of taking back power. Also, I was a goth in high school, so that was part of it too. There's always a, a part of me, a current of me that's going to want to write Susan the Banshee songs. So I have always had to kind of marry that with my other influences. It's like I have this weird like classical music meets goth. I guess that's not that weird. There's plenty of goth classical music. So anyway, I had that original version of Blood. What happened with Standing at the Edge is that I sent Patrick Leonard three CDs worth of material, one of them being the whole album of the Winter Children in the form it was in at the time. It had some different songs on it. And um, then what ended up being the, the final version of that record. So then he kind of listened to all, not kind of, he listened to all three albums and took all sorts of notes. When I finally flew to Los Angeles and we started the record, he showed me all these notes. Like he did his homework. I mean, he got paid a lot of money, but um, he kind of then said, okay, these are like 20 that I really want to look at. And then we picked 14 from that list of 20. And I, um, I guess, what's the best way to say this? I, I had to pick my battles with that record. It was the first record I had done with a giant budget with a big corporation behind it. Patrick Leonard, of course, a force to be reckoned with. He and I did not always agree, but most of the time I would do it his way. He was the producer and I was the artist and there was this kind of unspoken like, he gets what he wants because he's the experienced one. I did push back at times. We had some moments. We definitely did. We got along really well for the most part, but we had our moments where we didn't, uh, or where I would like vocally disagree. But a lot of the songs, the Stand at the Edge versions are faster. That tends to happen when you've lived with a song for a long time, you speed it up. But also Pat just felt like it needed, like blood needed to be faster. I personally prefer the Winter Children version of that song. I prefer the original versions of most of the songs on Stand at the Edge, even though they were done with a like zero dollar budget, because it was just more my expression. It was pure, my pure expression, my production of the song when I had first written it. <clears throat> Excuse me. So that one, yeah, we Patrick had this new um, keyboard that he was playing with, like a module with all these different synth sounds. So a lot of blood, I remember he was playing around with his new toys, basically. And uh, we put that version together for Stand at the Edge, which is a little, it's a, it's faster, it's a little more, it kind of chugs along at a higher clip and it has a little bit more of a punch to it where the original one, I kind of like the paradox of the fact that the lyrics are so dark and, but yet it kind of floats if that makes sense like it it floats along it still has a driving force to it for sure the piano part alone kind of drives that song but again it was about claiming power and saying like i'm not going to let you drain my energy anymore i'm coming for yours and so there's something very menacing about it which i enjoy because it wasn't my normal narrative to be the one i tended to be the passive person in a relationship which is really weird because now i'm the opposite but you know we grow and we change when i was young I, I had a real real inferiority complex i kind of had this thing where i walked in the room thinking no one was going to like me that came from being bullied we talked about that last week but being bullied as a child i think i just walked into most spaces thinking i wasn't going to fit or i wasn't going to belong i had a lot of social anxiety i had just this feeling like everybody thought they were better than me and they were probably right and so that bled into my relationships i would kind of take second seat um my therapist at the time said that i 
always took the temperature of my partner and then adjusted myself to them instead of being who I authentically was in the moment that day. So Blood was really a, kind of me coming into my own and changing my narrative. I was 24 when I wrote Blood, so I was just about to become 25. I was really also just in that point of my life. When I turned 25, I got really depressed, actually. I remember I fell asleep at my birthday party on the couch because I was so distraught. I just felt like I hadn't achieved my goals. I don't know if anybody else when you turn 25 or if you're about to hit 25 or you're younger than that, if you're thinking like that's some, I don't know, mile marker, mile post, like you're supposed to have done X, Y, and Z by that age. But for some reason I felt that way. 25 to me felt so old at the time. I was like, I can't believe I've been doing this for all these years and I'm still like waiting tables. I'm not signed. I'm not famous. Like all these things. Although I think I've talked about this in this podcast before or I did online. I made the choice really early on in my career that art mattered more to me than fame did. So my, choosing my artistic expression and my integrity and authenticity was always going to be the thing that I would choose over making money or being famous. But I wouldn't have minded to not necessarily be famous, but to have my work. I, what I wanted always was to be at the point where I could tour and play auditoriums. And that never really happened. And that's okay. And I've made my peace with all that. But um, at the time, I was really feeling down on myself. Um, and 9-11 had just happened. My birthday's in October. So... It, it just wasn't a great time. And so blood for me to wrap it up is really all, all of that kind of rolled into one. I, I think of that time, I think of that place and where I was and kind of taking over and kind of taking over my narrative again and getting some more confidence just in life and in relationships. And that was going to come into play big time because it was a year later on September 6th of uh, 2002 that I signed to Sony. So who knew that my 25th birthday, I was distraught because I hadn't achieved my goals. And then within a year, I did achieve those goals. So, and then I didn't like it very much. I liked it at first, and then I didn't. It became clear to me as time went on that being signed to a giant corporation was not a good fit for me. I didn't like that everybody wanted their hands in everything. And I would say for real, like 95% of the time, the only thing anybody talked about was image. I weighed too much. I didn't look good in this outfit, blah, blah, blah. It got very boring to me. I was like, are we ever going to talk about music? Somewhere in a box, I have a lot of like archived emails that my lawyer had printed out. And yeah, I was always like, okay, but when are we going to talk about music? Like nobody ever talks about music and I'm signed to a, a label for music, but it was 2002, three, four at the time and American Idol had just started and they would say things to me like, we could go on the sidewalk right now and find 10 of you. And so it wasn't a great experience for me And at the end of the day. Um, I don't regret it at all because I learned what I don't want in my life. And I learned that I could um, stick up for myself to a giant corporation, that I wasn't afraid to be in a room and say, no, I'm not going to do this. There's a lot more I could talk about with that, um, with Sony, but I'll save that for another day. So that's kind of the background of blood. Now we're going to move on. I had a question from Victoria in Canada about the Raven and why I chose to record the Raven. So what had happened was I actually recorded my album, The Calling of the Crows, before I recorded The Parting Glass, but I ended up releasing The Parting Glass first, which is a, my second folk song album where I took traditional um, American English, French, Scottish, Irish folk songs. Those are all of my identities. Speaking of identity, my cultural identity, my ancestry. Um, and I, I wanted to honor them by doing all sorts of different songs. And on The Parting Glass, I actually sang in both Irish, Gaelic, and Scots Gaelic uh, for the first time. So that was a big accomplishment for me. 
but I had done the calling of the crows. I was using crows at the time to process the loss of my cat, Henry, who I had had for 16 years. And I was just so devastated when he died in 2011. So in early 2012, the calling of the crows was my way to actually find my way back into recording. I hadn't really recorded anything since he had died in July of 2011. So that album got me back into the zone and it helped me process the immense grief that I was feeling. And I had read about how crows have funerals for fallen family members. Uh, so that it just the symbolism of it worked and so one day while I was making the parting glass uh, I stumbled upon the Raven online like it was on some social media site I was on it was tumblr probably and um, something to do with Edgar Allan Poe's poem the Raven and I thought oh this would be perfect to set to music setting poems to music I did also on the Sun is burning which is my first folk song album where I did some Yeats poems um, three of them actually at the end of the record the last three songs are all Yeats poems that I set to music it's incredibly intimidating to me because I'm the kind of musician that writes the music first and then I write words so I come up with a melody in my mind or and then I have to write words that fit to that rhythm I don't normally take words that already have a rhythm and try to fit them into something musical so with the Raven I I was like, okay, I have to figure out like the rhythm of this and what's going to work best. And then I came up with the piano parts, very simple. Uh, I felt because it's a poem that is so structured and like verse, 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 and it's telling a story in such a way, whereas Yeats is more symbolic and there's a lot more metaphor, whereas The Raven was an actual story. I felt like it should just kind of march along and chug along. And then I would use the same exact thing for every verse, but then change it up where it gets quieter, louder, change the dynamics, change, get the piano part kind of going, like hitting harder in certain parts. And what I liked about it was that I was actually taking parts where the you would think that the narrative should be building and I would actually take it down, take it really quiet. And so to me, like that felt more intense than the traditional take of like raising your voice. If you were reading it, it's like I'm taking it down to almost give it more of a sinister quality to it. But here's the thing. So the Raven is so long. So I had to abridge it. So that's a hat that's hard to put on when you're saying taking someone's work like Edgar Allan Poe and taking a hacksaw to it. But I knew it needed to be shorter. And even with the abridged version that I did, it's almost 10 minutes long. But I really wanted to take that poem and set it to music also just because it felt like a good way to process my grief. And I had also already recorded a song for Henry on the parting glass called The Blackest Crow, which was an American Appalachian folk song that was based on an original Scottish folk song. So I was already using the blackest crow to kind of symbolize Henry. So the raven seemed like a perfect fit. And th so then the raven became my grief hanging over my chamber door kind of thing. Quote the raven nevermore, like he's never coming back. So it was a real way in for me again to process the grief that I was feeling. So I've had people actually like laugh in my face that I wrote all this music about a cat that died, but I mean, hello, it's grief. And for those of you who have deep relationships with your pets, I'm sure you know that when they pass, it's extremely difficult, but it's something that there's this weird social stigma about. I was really open and honest about my feelings during that time. And some people criticized and said things like, well, it's just a cat, not to me. So I needed to get my grief out. I knew that if I could like process my grief in that particular way, that other people would be able to process theirs. And so I didn't want to be like, literally writing songs where the person is a cat but well not a person or you know the person in the, in the narrative is a cat no of course but i want it to be universal that's how i am with most of my music if you really 
look at it, I tend to try to be as universal as possible while still processing things that are quite personal to me. So The Raven did that for sure. Now we're going to talk about my song, Dear Sylvia. So Dear Sylvia, I wrote in Los Angeles, but I didn't actually record it until much later. So I'm trying to think. I think it's actually on the Divide. It was. Yep, I finally recorded it during Divide, but I wrote it in Los Angeles in like 1998, probably, or 97. Uh, but I didn't end up recording it until 2003. I have songs like that, where they kind of hang out for a long time. Um, so Dear Sylvia is actually about Sylvia Plath. I had written, oh, excuse me, I'd read The Bell Jar, and then I read a biography about her. And I actually had a plant named Sylvia Plath. Uh, that I used to have in my apartment, but I was just really, I had, I had a thing for Sylvia Plath and I was just kind of, I mean, I was way young. I was, I must've been 21, 20 or 21 when I wrote it. So she, uh, died by suicide at 30, I believe, or 31. Um, and I just, the bell jar really struck me and I've always, people used to always make fun of me. I, I don't know why, but I think because we have a misogynist and sexist society, but I've always had an affinity for female characters, strong female characters, any female characters, really. I have a lot of female qualities, obviously. My, I'm very sensitive. My voice is high. I mean, if we're talking about like traditionally, stereotypically generalizations, um, obviously being a gay man growing up, I got called, like I said last week, a girl a lot as a kid, but all my friends were girls. Most, for the most part, I had one male friend and he ended up being gay. Ironically, we didn't talk about it at the time. We were friends in elementary school, but, uh, we somehow we found each other, even though neither of us were living that truth at the time. Um, but I listened to almost all female artists. I've just always had a thing for the feminine voice for female work and art and movies and so the bell jar i really enjoyed reading that book with a female central character living in new york it was always my dream to live in new york which i didn't even think about till now i didn't end up recording that song until i lived in new york but uh, i wrote it in los angeles and just really wanted to um i mean i say dear sylvia i understand it's about knowing that darkness about knowing that knowing what it feels like to feel like things are grim and bleak i had a very dark and stormy mind for a long time and sometimes still do like i was mentioning at the, the onset of the podcast today just today feeling that a little bit just not suicidal necessarily um but understanding how someone can get to that point especially when you're an artist and you spend your life turning over the stones of yourself and really taking a hard look at the truth of what's going on inside and your emotions and processing that it can be a lot to manage so that song um is near and dear to me. I'm going to start talking about Divide actually on my Facebook page. We're going to go through each song. I just haven't started it yet, but Divide actually was four albums worth of material that I recorded and each of them had their own title, including Shaping the Leaves, Painting the Trees, which I ended up calling some of the B-side collections. Uh, but it was, yeah, it was Shaping the Leaves I wrote first and then Painting the Trees and then there was, um, what was the third one? It was called... I forget, Hard Rain or something, something about a hard rain. And then the fourth one was called Telescope on Evolution. And I took all four of those records and chose the 12 songs that became Divide. It was insanely difficult. And it was probably the most prolific period of my career. I had just finished Standing at the Edge. Sorry, I was actually the first song recorded for Divide. 
Uh, I actually wrote the I know it's over part at the end during the Standing at the Edge sessions. And then when I got back to New York, I turned it into a song. And my recording equipment was fairly new. I had been in Los Angeles for four months. When I got home to New York, I just started writing and writing and writing and writing. Actually, I kept it all a secret from Sony because contractually they would own any work that I made. So even though I recorded it in my home studio, Sony would own the recordings. So I purposefully did not give them anything. Uh, I was I didn't know what was going to happen at the time, but it became more and more clear as time went on that I was not going to have my contract picked up uh, for the second record. I had a five album deal with Sony, but the way it works is that after every album you wait to hear if they're going to option your next album, kind of like being an author. Um, so I had a five album deal with them, but I had a feeling once it became clear that Stand at the Edge was not going to do well because Sony merged with BMG uh, in August of 2003, we finished Stand at the Edge in April. And when they merged, I said, oh shit, I guess this is an explicit episode. Um, but yeah, so I knew the writing was on the wall and it turned out a lot of the people I worked with didn't even work there anymore by the time Stand at the Edge came out. There was a time where I famously called Sony to talk to someone and they didn't know who I was and my album had just been out for like a month I'm like you don't even know who I am so it wasn't it wasn't great but it turned out to be a huge blessing because I wanted out of my deal anyway so I asked the president to get out of my contract and they said yes so I still have the letter somewhere that says like per your request we're releasing you from your contract which to me I don't know it's prideful but I didn't want to be dropped I wanted to have it be my decision to leave Sony but I my contract wasn't up until July of 2005 and I wasn't going to wait that long so I got out of my contract in December of 2004 instead so that I could start my indie career which divide ended up being so it was smart end of the story that was smart that I saved all that work and kept it a secret because then I owned it so th hopefully no one's listening I don't think you can go back retroactively anyway anyhow so that's dear Sylvia the last song I'm gonna talk about today I can't believe how much time this is taking up I thought I was gonna get through six songs but I guess it's only gonna be four so maybe I'll do another bonus episode burning trees so burning trees is another one that's a uh, now a divide b-side um, i wrote it on shaping the leaves which was the first set of 14 songs um, each of the divide recordings was 14 songs worth of work so what's the math there 56 songs total um, that had to narrow down to 12. burning trees is the story of me leaving my first long-term relationship also the first and only time until kurt that i lived with someone that i was in a relationship with so i left in 2000 the summer of 2000 august 2000 from los angeles and moved to chicago to be closer to my family and to just change things up because i just kept getting back together with my ex so i was like i literally have to move away and i was so tired of los angeles so burning trees is not only the story of that relationship ending which ended up becoming the basis for so many of my songs because i had so much to process we were like so good when we were good and we were so bad when we were bad i talked about this i think before kurt and i have a similar dynamic except we're mostly good like 99 percent good um but we were very very connected to one another we still are we still talk we were still friends i he lives in new york now and if i go to new york i'll we'll have drinks we'll catch up we have a very deep bond it's always going to be that way i think we just didn't work um so that is like that burning trees is like my i wouldn't call it a love letter or a hate letter but it's like kind of my letter to los angeles and the end of that relationship of leaving i i lived in la for six years i liked the first three i did not like the second three um, I got really tired of it. I didn't like the rat race. I didn't like how shallow it was that everybody cared about what kind of car you had. Um,
It was interesting because when I went back to Los Angeles to make Stand at the Edge, it was a full circle moment because then I was signed to Sony and I learned really quickly at parties not to say that because then everybody wanted to give me their demo. So I just started saying I was a waiter again because I knew from my time living in in Los Angeles that if I said I was a server at a restaurant, no one was going to pay any attention to me. They're going to move on to the next person because I had nothing to offer them. I think it's interesting. I have lots of friends who live in LA and my friends who love it the most are my friends who are not in the entertainment business. So I think for me, it was just the music industry was making me not enjoy my work. I had a really dark, dark time when I first moved to Chicago and you know, blood came out of that time. It was only a year later that I wrote it. Uh, I just, I had a weird relationship with music. And when I moved to Chicago, I didn't even tell anybody that I was a musician at work or anything. I just, I mean, maybe a couple people that I became friends with, but I just, I wanted that not to be the driving part of my life. So I knew I had to leave Los Angeles because the music industry was making me not enjoy music anymore. And that was really upsetting to me, especially being 24 or 23 when I first moved. I turned 24 shortly after. But yeah, it's this literally when I say an airport paints the memory or whatever the line is I can never remember my own words I'm notorious for getting them wrong in concert too um an airport paints the memory I think I said like literally like my ex brought me to the airport with both of my cats and cat carriers and then I had to take them out of the carriers to go through TSA and my cat Henry peed all over me and so I had to be on the whole flight with cat pee all over my clothes and I had to do all this like I had to jump through a bunch of hoops to take them on the plane I had to buy two plane tickets so that they could both be under the seats because I was not putting them in cargo it was just, a, it was a lot. And we had to say goodbye to each other. And it was, I was, you know, there were lots of tears because we still lived together until the very end. We had broken up in like June, but we had to live together for two more months. And so we we did love each other quite a bit. It just, we just couldn't make it work. Like we just were too volatile of a couple. It just wasn't, we didn't work romantically. We just didn't. I, for many years, wished we could have. And now that we're older, we sometimes would say like a few years ago, like before I met Kurt or anything, like what if we, because he's married also now, but I, we were like, what if, you know, we got back together as older adults? In fact, a lot of um, the album, which album is it? Orbit is about me thinking about giving it another chance. The song Willing to Try, he always says is like the love song I he always wanted but never had gotten from me. <laughs> so if you listen to the song Willing to Try from Orbit, that's me thinking about going back to that relationship and also being old enough to know that it's not ever one person's fault that we both played our parts in that relationship. So Burning Trees is really the story of knowing that the relationship is over. Like Burning Trees have found us out. Like the forest is burning down, whether we like it or not. And it's just never going to happen. And so that's kind of like, that was the hard line drawn in the sand. Like, this is it. And again, me leaving Los Angeles because I just couldn't deal with it anymore. I was just really burnt out. So that's Burning Trees. I love that song. I don't know why I didn't make the record of, honestly. It's, I love playing it live. I, lo I, did a, I was actually inspired in the production by uh, Rocket's Tale by Kate Bush. Not so much the actual song itself, but the production and the fact that it kind of hums along with just piano and some other like altered harp and some synths. And then all of a sudden at the very end, it's got drums or maybe like halfway through the drum. All of a sudden there's drums because I love that moment in Rocket's Tale by Kate Bush from the sensual world where the drums just kick in out of nowhere. It's like amazing. It's like all vocals and then boom, drums and bass and guitar. Like I love Kate Bush in general. So that's the story behind that song. If I do another bonus episode, I'll talk about some of the other songs you all mentioned to me. Um, the, uh, the Dear Sylvia and Burning Trees, Kim asked me to do those. And I believe you're in Los Angeles. So interesting. Um, so that's that for this week. Um, next week, I promise 
I will have my episode out on the right day of the week on Thursday, and it will be with Kurt. We're going to record the interview. Just we were ships in the night a little bit this week, and then in the evenings we just like to do our thing and watch TV and have a beverage or two. <laughs> I like to have my whiskey. I can't even wait today. I'm like, is it 7 o'clock yet? I'm like an old man with my cocktail hour. So that's just a little bit behind the scenes of some of the songs. Thanks for being here for this bonus episode. And next week I'll be back with a regular one. Please take care of yourselves. Wash those hands. Stay safe. Wear a mask. Do what you need to do. I'm going to keep saying this. Find comfort where you can. This has actually been comforting for me. So thank you for listening. Uh, it's helping me get into a little bit of a better headspace today. And it's just fun to go down memory lane with some of these songs that are almost 20 years old now. A lot of them are getting there, 15 plus. And just a different time of my life, but one of my songwriting times of my life that I just look back so fondly on because I was young and just had all these ideas and it just kind of flowed out of me constantly. It's not like that for me anymore. So thank you again and please stay safe and take care of yourselves and I will talk to you next week.